Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I want to get into the economy as a starting point and its relationship to the rise of neo-fascism on the right and the impact of Reaganism. Some of this stuff is stuff that I've ranted about before, but this is reaching a crisis point right now here in the United States. I mean, if you think things are bad now in America... Just wait until people start kicking in people's doors for food. There's already an epidemic of food shoplifting. There's an epidemic of stealing, you know, packages from people's houses. Just last week, we had a homeless person going through our garbage looking for cans. It's happening all over the country. And in fact, I mean, the Washington Post just today, the headline, 2020 was the worst year for economic growth since the Second World War. You know, the Second World War was like on the tail end of the Republican Great Depression. We are now in the second Republican Great Depression. Another Washington Post article points out, we are now out of every six families with children, six renter families with children. One of those six families, quote, lacked sufficient food in the past seven days, end quote. This is a survey that was done two weeks ago. One in between six and seven families, one in six families, more or less, literally at this moment, as we're speaking in the United States of America, the so-called richest country in the world, one in six families don't have enough food for their kids, families who rent. This is a situation that literally does not exist in any other developed country in the world. You are not seeing food lines in Canada. You are not seeing, you know, bread lines, essentially, in Germany. All these other countries, pretty much every other OECD country, I don't have a complete list, but I, you know, I can certainly tell you at least 15 or 20 of them, are making direct payments to all of the people who were employed before this pandemic blew up our economies, you know, combined with 40 years of austerity. All of these countries are are making direct payments to people. 
We've done that twice in the United States, right? With a $600 check and a, what was it? A $1,200 check way back last year, a $1,000 check, the original check. That's it. In the UK, you know, in France, in Germany, in Norway, in Spain, people are getting $1,000 a month, excuse me, a week or $1,500 or whatever it may be. I mean, they are maintaining their working class. We are not. I can't even call it the middle class anymore. Fewer than half of Americans are middle class. So how could you call it middle? We are in an unacknowledged second Republican Great Depression. Yes, that's what they called the one back in the 30s right up until Republicans started squealing about it in the 1950s and Joe McCarthy started saying, you know, don't call it the Republican Great Depression anymore, number one. And number two, when you refer to the Democratic Party, call it the Democrat Party with emphasis on the rat. The great forgetting, right? How quickly we forget. The survey that they completed just two weeks ago found this again from today's Washington Post. Fully 46% of American children who live in renter households are either their household is either behind on their rent or they lack sufficient food or both. Roughly half of American families with children who are renting. Now, there was a time in America when we saw something very much like this. I remember growing up in the 1950s. My mom telling me about, you know, who was born in the 1920s. Both my parents were born in the 1920s. I think mom was born in 26 and dad was in 29. Um, and I remember her telling me about, or showing me, how to get the last little bit of toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube by, you know, you roll it all up all the way down to the end and then you put it in the door, you open a door and you stick it in that crack, you know, where the hinge is and then you use the leverage of the door to squeeze the last bit of toothpaste out. And she told me stories about how when she was going to, to Michigan State University and living in the dormitory or in the, actually, I think she lived in a sorority house. You know, actually, I'm not sure <laughs> now that I think about it because, I mean, she was broke, broke, broke. Although maybe, maybe then it was cheaper. I don't, I don't know. Now she, was, she put herself through college working summers as a lifeguard in Charlevoix, Michigan. But in any case, to get the last of the two, you know, she taught me how to use just two little squares of toilet paper to be, you know, be frugal, right? This was my parents' thing. My dad, once he got a job, you know, when I was around seven years old, he got a job in a tool and die shop where he worked for almost 50 years after that. And it constantly was impressing on me the importance of getting a good job and a good union job and keeping it. I largely ignored that advice and went off to be an entrepreneur, but, which my dad encouraged, by the way. And, you know, I've told this story many times on the air, you know, in 1956. And, you know, when I was five years old, going to the cheese store with my dad, my mom and my brothers, you know, <laughs> the surplus food store from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where we'd get, you know, the bricks of American cheese and a 10 pound box of powdered milk and a 25 pound bag of macaroni. But what was going on back then in the 1950s that I remember and in the 1930s that my parents told me about? was that nobody was in the media saying government can't help us. There was nobody out there saying, you know, the, the nine most dangerous or scary words in the English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Nobody was talking like that. Because Franklin Roosevelt had proven to America that government could work. Well, now we've had 40 years of this sales pitch from the Republican Party and the Reaganistas that government, in fact, can't work. And surprise, surprise, 
They broke it, right? They've broken our government. And you've got all these people who are saying, well, government doesn't work. Why should I, you know, so let's just overthrow the damn thing. Or let's fill it with crackpots. Or let's, let's put in, in charge of every government agency some lobbyist for some industry. This was Trump's response. It was also George W. Bush's response. And of course, it's what Ronald Reagan did. And I'm telling you, if we can't prove the government works, and by we, I'm talking about the Democratic Party because there's not a single Republican on board with this. If Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress can't prove the government can work, can help you and me, can help the people who are unemployed, can help the one in six renting families who literally cannot feed their children right now as we speak, who can't stop this epidemic of homelessness. If Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress can't do what Franklin Roosevelt did and take us out of a second Republican Great Depression, you think the coup of 2021 was bad? The coup of 2024, you know, it was the old joke. What do you call a failed coup? A rehearsal. And that's where we're at. These guys are viewing, you know, they viewed Michigan as a rehearsal for the January 6th. And now they're talking about January 6th as a rehearsal. Well, they got this new conspiracy theory that on March 4th, Donald Trump is going to be sworn in as the real president of the United States. I mean, this is the crackpot stuff. But uh, although it's got millions of followers. But, you know, just setting aside the crazy stuff. If the Republicans succeed, if Mitch McConnell succeeds in preventing government from helping average Americans, like they have been blocking now for literally 40 friggin' years, if he succeeds, if the Republicans succeed in this, if Rand Paul succeeds in this, then the next coup is going to be a hell of a lot worse. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Let your members of Congress know. 202-224-3121 is the number for Congress. We'll be back. Hey, we have a special video up over at TomHartman.com. And it's about how FDR in 1944, in fact, January 44, in his uh, State of the Union address, talked about how important it was to add rights to the Bill of Rights. The original Bill of Rights was all political rights. He said it's time to enshrine economic rights in our Constitution. I would add, like most of the governments of Europe have done, and this includes the right to housing, the right to food, the right to, to a good job that pays well, the right to an education, including a college education, and the right to health care. It's pretty powerful stuff. And frankly, I think that what this coronavirus crisis is proving is that we are all in this together and that Reagan's thing about government is never going to help you was just a, a load of crap. And so you can check it out over at TomHartman.com. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's on your mind? Guten Tag, mein Freund. Another. It, it's great to be. <laughs> You've got to do it with great some language, right? It's, 
<laughs> oh, you're going to get a few. Where, where I lived a... in Germany, they said uh, they didn't say Guten Tag. You say that in, up in northern Germany. That's Hauptdeutsch, high German. Where I lived in the Frankenwald, they'd say Grüße Gott. God is great was literally how you greet people. But anyway, what's up, Chess? Yeah, you are more of a citizen of the world than I am, but I am just thrilled to be a part of that world now. I wanted to talk real quick about austerity, which is you were talking about a couple minutes ago. See, the deal is, is I've got friends who are giving up on homes and they're opting for living in RVs and mobile homes. And I just think that's very telling. Yeah. We live down just down the street from a, a park and a, and a stretch of road where you can park, and there are constantly RVs parked there. And people are obviously living in them, and some of them are really old and ratty. Some of them are fairly new. But you're right. These are the, the new uh, hobos, is what they called them during the, the first know, Republican yeah, Great Depression. Yeah, the, the Hoovervilles, I think we uh, call them. Yep. Um, but I tell you what, let me lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, I want to compare my conspiracy punch card years and see if you've got all the spots filled up with vaccine microchips and Pizzagate and Jade Helm and death panels, drain swamp, locker up. Obama will take your guns. And he was a Kenyan Muslim terrorist that celebrated Passover. Did I miss anything? I'm sure you did. I, I don't have a list, Chaz. And I've been trying not to hold a mental list in my head. But, oh, but uh, oh, well, actually, the new one, you know, I mentioned it briefly, and I think I've got it here in my stack of things, is that, well, in fact, I can do it from memory because I, I've known about this for a long time. One of these really wackadoodle theories on the right is that in uh, the 1770s, right after the, uh, or during the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, there was this obscure piece of legislation that turned America into a corporation. And ever since then, every piece of legislation that has been passed is unconstitutional and illegal. And so therefore, the, uh, the amendment, which happened after the Franklin Roosevelt election in 1932, it, you know, he didn't get inaugurated until March 4th, because that was the date in the Constitution, in the original Constitution. And the, so the, the Great Depression ground on for another five months. And so they, they amended the Constitution in the late 30s, early 40s, to say that you know, the president takes office on, on January 20th. And so this conspiracy theory is that because that amendment happened after this law in the 1870s, it doesn't matter. And so on March 4th, the real government is going to inaugurate the real president, Donald Trump, as president, and uh, onward we go. That's, that's the new one that's all over Facebook. I forgot the most recent one deep down in the dark in the deep state is that apparently Biden and Trump have swapped faces. You heard about that one? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And that was supposed to have happened on on, uh, on January 20th, that, that it was actually Trump being signed in. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Chaz, thanks a lot for the call. Stick around. It's the Tom Harbin program. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity 
And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash for the Tom Harvin University Book Club today, we're reading from a book written by my old friend, Dennis Weaver. He has passed away. I wrote the foreword of this book, just FYI. It's called All the World's a Stage, and it's Dennis's autobiography. Dennis Weaver, Chester and Gunsmoke, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's talking about early in the Depression. This is from page uh, 17, just kind of telling his early life. Early in the Depression, it became clear that he's talking about the 1930s, when he was a young boy. Early in the Depression, it became clear that people had to come together and support each other, or many would just not survive. Not being cooperative and neighborly was not an option. If our neighbors were in trouble, we would not think twice about helping them. We just did it. I remember a family named Hardy bought the 10 acres next to our farm. There was nothing on that land except woods. The men in the surrounding area got together on weekends to cut down the trees and made logs to build a house, a real log raising. Within six or seven weekends, they built a log home for the Hardy family to live in and a shed for their cows. Children had lots of fun. We played games and jumped from stump to stump like leaping frogs while the men sawed logs and hammered nails. Ladies brought covered dishes of food like potato salad, baked beans, and jello, and we had a picnic at lunchtime. It was a community thing, a gathering of friends, and to this day, I still carry the feeling with me. In those times and moments, despite the Depression, we thought we had the best of life, and in a way, we really did. Life was simpler. We knew how good it felt to be neighborly, to share our lives with each other. The national economy was shredded due to the crash of 1929, but in our area, including parts of Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, the problem was exacerbated by what was known as the Great Dust Bowl. Continuing droughts had dried up the earth, and the fierce winds picked up the defenseless soil and made huge clouds of thick, swirling dust. Visibility often shrunk to a few yards. Most skilled and determined farmers were humbled before its wrath. The nutritious topsoil was all blown away and agriculture came to a screeching halt. At the time, I didn't understand it, but it's crystal clear to me now that our economy and our environment are interdependent. When the environment at that time was destroyed and the farmers could no longer farm, they weren't the only ones who suffered. The economic disaster for the farmers spread like a raging virus to carpenters, plumbers, shop owners, and even bankers. Okies by the thousand piled whatever possessions they could salvage into cars, trucks, any jalopy that would run, 
and headed for California, which Dust Bowl victims considered to be the land of milk and honey. Perhaps the only one who profited from the Dust Bowl was John Steinbeck when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath. Because of the Dust Bowl, our farm was not financially successful. It certainly helped to feed the family, but the extra income my folks had hoped it would generate did not materialize. Mom, always trying to find a way out, heard from neighbors who had fled the Dust Bowl and our devastated economy earlier that the strawberry picking was good in Oregon. There was money to be made just for the picking. So we gave up on the farm and moved back to my birthplace in Joplin, 619 Brownell, to get ready for the trek west. Furthest west I'd ever been was Blackwell, Oklahoma. Would I see a real-life cowboy? I wondered. What would Oregon be like? I might even see the Pacific Ocean. Our budget for the trip was minimal at best. Like the pioneers who crossed the Great Plains 100 years earlier, we were obliged to carry our own supplies because motels and restaurants were out of the question. Unlike those earlier settlers, the horses that carried us were not hitched to a wagon, but were under the hood of a 1928 DeSoto. Our plan was simple. Mom, Howard, and Mary Ann, two years old by this time, Jerry, Denzel, Bell, and I would go to Oregon and pick strawberries and do what other jobs we could get. We would save our earnings and come back to Joplin in time for Howard and me to go back to school. Dad would stay behind, keep his job at the Empire District, and serve as a safety net for us. In case we broke down or got stranded, he could bail us out. Denzel was a carpenter by trade. He put his skills to good use. He built a cupboard on the back of old Betsy, our DeSoto, where we could store an ample supply of canned goods and food staples. By releasing a fastener, the backside of the cupboard opened up and a leg swung down to support it, and lo and behold, we had a table on which to prepare the food and off of which we could eat. We jammed the storeroom with supplies, gave old Betsy a final mechanical check, said our farewells, and headed west for the wild blue yonder. Although she never hinted at it, I'm sure Mom must have had a few qualms and trepidations. For me, it was just the beginning of what I imagined to be a great adventure. We started out for Oregon in the late spring of 1934. In those days, there were no four-lane interstates, just two-lane roads that were often in need of repair and full of detours. Our top speed was 40 miles an hour, so driving to Oregon was no walk in the park. Not long after crossing into Colorado from Kansas, we could see on the horizon what looked like a triangular cloud. It was strange because like the other clouds moved, this one didn't budge. We used it as a guiding star for more than two hours before we realized it wasn't a cloud at all. It was the snow-capped top of Pike's Peak. As we drove deeper and deeper into the Rocky Mountains, I was moved more and more by their sheer beauty and breathtaking grandeur. It was awesome. I loved the majestic granite mountains, the tall pines, the quaking aspens, crisp, dry air. It was all very magical to me. I guess I'm back in Colorado today because I was so impressed with it as a child. I was not only impressed by the beauty, but by what it had to offer. This was the first time I'd ever seen a real live working cowboy, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a real deer. We were driving over Wolf Creek Pass at dusk, coming around a bend, and there right in front of us was this wild deer running down the road in and out of the shadows. The book All the World's a Stage, Dennis Weaver's autobiography, the foreword by Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So a couple of other things I wanted to share with you. I think, number one, this economic agenda needs to pass. And it's one of the reasons that we need to blow up the filibuster, which is another reason that we need to be talking to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin at 202-224-3121, the telephone number for the Capitol switchboard. That is 202-224-3121. We also need to be calling basically every senator and saying, please vote to impeach this guy. 
cut off his pension, cut off his his uh, travel budget, cut off his big microphone as a former president, and cut off his ability to run for office again. But I wanted to add this just extraordinary, you know, we're starting now to learn that January 6th wasn't just some spontaneous thing. It wasn't some accident. It wasn't a bunch of people who just decided to go nuts. That Ginny Thomas and the women who had put together the, uh, the actual rally got punked by Donald Trump when Trump got up there and said, okay, let's march to the Capitol. I'll go with you. He literally said that. They had no idea he was going to say that, or at least that's what they're saying. They were shocked. And boom, off they went. But Trump knew he was going to say that. And it's looking like there was a meeting in the presidential suite in the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump has his own suite of rooms and living area and all this kind of stuff in the Trump Hotel which, as you know, is just a few blocks down the street from the White House. And in that private suite of rooms, there are multiple reports now. Seth Abramson's doing some of the best reporting on this, in fact. We're, we're, we've been uh, trying to get him on the program to talk about it. Um, he writes, well after dark on January 5th, 2021, just 15 hours before an insurrection be against the United States government incited by the President of the United States, Nebraska Republican Charles W. Herbster at the time, the national chairman of the Agriculture and Rural Advisory Committee for the Trump administration, there was a senior Trump administration official, attended a private meeting of Trump family members, Trump administration officials, Trump campaign advisors, January 6th organizers, and at least one member of the United States Senate at the Trump International Hotel in, in Washington, D.C. He's alleging that that senator was Tommy Tuberville the newly elected senator from Alabama who literally does not know or did not know what the three branches of government are. And according to Seth Abramson's reporting and, and other reporting that you can find pretty much everywhere, you know, at this meeting were Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Michael Flynn, Peter Navarro, Corey Lewandowski, David Bossie, who is the deputy campaign manager, Adam Piper, who is the executive director of the Republican Attorney General's Association. Keep in mind, the next day, it was the Republican Attorney General's Association that had tweeted or emailed or somehow reached out to their people saying, you know, get down there. Tommy Tuberville, United States Senator from Alabama. And then according, he says, according to research by political strategist and regular Fox News contributor Sherry Jacobus, and uh, TaxWire CEO Daniel Beck, also at the meeting, were Rudy Giuliani, Trump's attorney, Kimberly Guilfoyle, which, and this is particularly significant, I'll get to that in a second, and Mike Lindell, uh, Mr. MyPillow. Guilfoyle's presence at the meeting, Seth Abramson writes, is critical given that the Stop the Steal coordinator, this guy Ali Alexander, claims that he received a phone call from Guilfoyle during the evening of January 5th, when she would have been there with Trump's family and advisors. Now, Tuberville is saying, oh, no, I wasn't at the Trump Hotel, but now there's pictures of Senator Tuberville at the Trump Hotel. And all, the only thing, so we know that these people got together. We know that the following day, Donald Trump said, march on the Capitol. We know that there was a media infrastructure promoting this. 
It's increasingly looking like the entire thing that led to the death now of three police officers, another police officer is losing an eye, over a hundred of them severely injured, many brain injuries, a couple of dozen of them hospitalized, and that's just the cops. Five dead people and an attempt to assassinate the Vice President of the United States and the Speaker of the House of Representatives that this was apparently planned the night before at the Trump Hotel. And I can tell you, you know, the way Trump thinks, and you know, Michael Cohen would be a good one to talk to about this too, but the way that Trump thinks, I could just imagine him sitting around saying, yep, once we seize the government, don't worry. Yes, it's illegal. Yes, it's a crime. Yes, it's treason. But I will pardon you all because I'm going to continue being president. And we will just basically shut down Congress. We'll take over. After all, Ronald Reagan told us government's no good, so let's make it no good. He'd already largely accomplished that over five years. This is getting really, really grody. And now we've got, and then, in fact, I haven't even gotten yet to all the reasons that Republicans are trying to normalize what happened on January 6th and stop the impeachment of this guy. To the Tom Hartman program. Hey, my new book is out. The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. In this book, I trace the history of the struggle against oligarchy from America's founding to the United States' war with the feudal confederacy to President Franklin Roosevelt's struggle against economic royalists who wanted to block the New Deal. In each of those cases, the oligarchs lost the battle. But with increasing right-wing control, we're at a crisis point. Want to know more? You can sign up for three virtual book events. Powell's virtual event in conversation with David Corton is Tuesday, February 2nd at 5 p.m. Pacific time. The Seattle Town Hall virtual event is Thursday, February 4th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And the Books and Books virtual event in conversation with David Corton is Tuesday, February 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Come support your local bookstores and hear about my new book on oligarchy. The links are all over at TomHartman.com. John in Los Angeles. Hey, John, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for being a true patriot. If Trump had done away with it, he would instill martial law, executed politicians, journalists, remember Khashoggi, and dissenters who do not go if along If Trump had done away with what? With his political coup, with, you know, raiding oh, the Capitol. Oh, I see. Right. And uh, I equate yeah. Biden's kumbaya of complete naivety. It's like the peaceful protesters back at Kent State when they put flowers in the M16s of the National Guard. Now he's putting a flower in the barrel of the sniper who wants to kill him. I think Chuck Schumer should go down in history as the Neville Chamberlain, the modern Neville Chamberlain. In your regards to the smuck in West Well, hang on just a second, John. Let me respond to what you just said. I am willing to give Chuck Schumer a few more weeks, but this, I think, is going to be a really consequential moment. On Rachel Maddow's show, Chuck Schumer said, you know, she said, well, what are you going to do about the filibuster? And he was like, I got something up my sleeve. And she was like, what is that? And frankly, I have no idea what he's got up his sleeve. And he was not willing to tell Rachel. So whether what he has up his sleeve is that he's going to offer Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin some incredibly plum thing, you know, make them committee chairs or something in exchange for their doing away with their opposition to the filibuster, 
or whether he's got some other legislative weight around the filibuster. I don't know. But we'll find out. Anyhow, John, where were you going with that? Well, it's just going to be the same old, same old. But, uh, you know, as far as Manchin and the other smuck, let's not give them the decency of the Democratic platform. If, If they're going to be Republicans, find some way to either kick them out or if he's killing his constituents off left and right, Sooner or later, they're going to get it, and you would hope that somebody would, you know, vote for a, a, a Democrat that wants to, you know, give them health care and whatnot and many other things, and yeah. you know, instead of, like, padding their... But, John, it's really difficult to primary a sitting senator, A, and B, it's particularly difficult to do it around a piece of legislative procedure like the filibuster. I guarantee you the filibuster in Arizona and West Virginia is not going to enrage enough citizens that they will mount a primary challenge against Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, and threatening them is just going to piss them off. Instead, I think we need to appeal to them and say, please, you know, this is vital to our future as a country and as a world. If we're going to have any kind of legislation that does anything, you know, with climate change, which is could be a civilization ender, we're going to have to get rid of the filibuster because you've got so many members of the Senate, every single member of the, of the Republican Party, who are basically wholly owned by oil billionaires like the Koch brothers, well, the brother who's left, that, you know, ain't nothing going to happen unless we get rid of the filibuster. John, I got to run, but thank you for the call and I appreciate your comments. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program. Taking back the mainstream media three hours a day, five days a week. We're right here. Stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. Terry in Eugene, Oregon. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how you doing, sir? I did catch that Rachel Maddow interview with Chuck Schumer, which I thought was amazing. I do believe he said that even if he can't get rid of the filibuster, he can modify it. I think he was saying like he could bring it down to 45 or less than the 60 votes. Yeah, well, that's that's, that's a possibility. 
Yeah, well, it used to be 66 be votes, and, and then it got reduced to yeah, 60 votes. And it used to right, apply to everything, and then they more. did away with federal judges, and then they did away with Supreme Court judges. You know, I mean, Mitch McConnell got rid of the filibuster for, for the Supreme Court just so he could get Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. I thought the modification might appease the two Democrats. That way, they're not really technically losing the filibuster. It's just modified to where it's actually fair. Right. But even if they took the filibuster to 52 votes, right, so that one right. Republican could block legislation, I guarantee you there's always going to be one Republican. Huh. It just, it's unfortunate uh, I, you know, it, like we have the power, but we don't have the power. <laughs> Right. Well, this is the thing. I mean, we'll see, <laughs> as they say. We'll see. Rob in Long Island, New York City. Hey, Rob, what's up? Hey, Tom. To kind of move forward on the caller just before, who was saying lower the maybe lower the number of votes needed to, to end the filibuster, why don't mm-hmm. we just go back? I, we, I had this problem in 2009 when Harry Reid, Knowing what Mitch McConnell was going to do, Harry Reid didn't change this rule then. We need to go back to people. You you actually said this at the time. We need to go back to people standing up and speaking, and they and they stand and they talk. And when they can't talk anymore, when they have to leave, then the vote happens. We need to stop with this eternal filibuster. If you well, that might be what BS. Mitch McConnell's thinking of doing. That we'll we'll keep the filibuster, but you have to speak. Uh, Chuck Schumer. Schumer. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that may be what he's got up his sleeve. I'm, you know, that makes sense. I, I and, hope and it is, Rob, because that way they technically are abiding by what Manchin and Cinema are saying they won't, they refuse to do. Okay, we'll keep the filibuster, so now you can vote yes, but now they have to stand and speak. Right, but, but you have to stand up and speak, and the filibuster ends the minute that you sit down or you stop speaking. Which has exactly. never been the way it actually worked. I mean, early on when they were kind of, you know, when John C. Calhoun and his friends were figuring this out, it sort of worked that way. But really, that's more a Hollywood creation. But it's how most people think the filibuster still works. So, uh, you know, why not do it? Why not institute it? That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Rob. I appreciate the call. Vicki in Muskegon, Michigan. Hey, Vicki, what's up? Hi, Tom. If cinema in mansion, excuse me, has to please their donors and they want to please banks and coal, perhaps our approach should be to banks and coal. You know, banks, what are you doing for your clientele? What are you doing for your black clientele? Or what are you doing to them? Um, You know, maybe some guilt that direction would be more effective. You know, it's almost impossible to lobby a bank, Vicki. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, yeah. they've got all this money. They've got these high-powered lobbyists, most of whom are former members of Congress or staffers. Um, you know, it's a huge insider network. They spend millions and millions of dollars on it. And you can't just, like, you know, call up your local Bank of America branch and say, stop the filibuster. I mean, I, I wish we could. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And, and maybe some boycotts would be a good thing. But Vic, you know, I get what you're saying, that the special interests here are the ones pulling the strings by and large. And I think that that's right. absolutely true. How do we deal with that? Well, that's what HR1 is all about, which the Koch brothers, or Charles Koch, Freedom Works, actually, is all hysterical about. I got another email from them this morning. They're calling it the Gag Act, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's crazy. Vicki, thank you for the call. Some great ideas today. Some great, great ideas. Stick around. We're going to be back. We're going to talk about the war in Yemen.
Share the Tom Hartman program with your friends. We're available on Sirius XM, Free Speech TV, Pacifica, commercial stations nationwide, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, on the Tom Hartman app, and you can even tell your smart speaker to listen to the Tom Hartman program. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us is Medea Benjamin, activist, co-founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange, author of the absolutely brilliant book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. CodePink.org and GlobalExchange.org are her websites. You can tweet her at Medea, M-E-D-E-A, Benjamin. And Medea, welcome back. I believe the last time we talked, we were talking about the war in Yemen, how Saudi Arabia's gotten into it, and how Iran's gotten into it. You want to give us just an overview of what that situation is right now and how it got this way? This started under the Obama administration when, in exchange for signing the Iran nuclear deal, Obama agreed to be helping the Saudis in their intervention in Yemen. And just kind of like it was with the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq, remember where they said it was going to be three months, I think, was the maximum that it was going to be over? The idea here from the Crown Prince Ben Salman is, oh, you know, we can deal with this in a couple of weeks. Well, you know, now it's been five years, and it's been a devastating war. I would say the Iranians were not involved when it started, but became involved over time. And it's made Yemen the poorest country in the world that's now not only facing tremendous starvation, but also the pandemic and without the ability to provide any relief to the people. So it's a desperate situation. And with the Biden administration, it's time to get the U.S. out of this horrible war and push the Saudis to end it. Right. So... My understanding of how this happened, and please correct me because I'm sure this is very incomplete, was that basically there was this Houthi rebellion, essentially a a coup. Uh, The Houthis are Shia Muslims. The Saudis are Sunni Muslims. They came in to defend the Sunni regime. Stop me at any point if I got anything wrong, please. And using U.S. weapons started bombing the crap out of the country and going after the Houthis. At that point, the Houthis' fellow Shias, the Iranians, now this was after this all started as a result of Obama greenlighting this for the Saudis, then the Iranians said, well, you know, our buddies are being slaughtered, and so they jumped into it, and so now it's, it's an all-out proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and tens of millions of people are in the crosshairs. Over a million people are at risk of starving to death, or are actively starving to death as we speak. Tens of millions of people have been rendered homeless. I believe it's winter there. I'm not sure how far north of the equator Yemen is. I've never been there. Um, Is that a good summary? Yes, and then on top of that, we have the parting slap from Pompeo putting the Houthis on foreign terrorist organization list, which makes it more difficult Mm. for humanitarian organizations to help people in the Houthi-controlled areas, which are quite populous. So that's something else that we need Biden to do right away, which is take the Houthis off of that terrorist list. So what has the Biden administration said about My understanding is they have not yet done anything. There's a couple of things in the balance here. One is Donald Trump started just shoveling weapons at Mohammed bin Salman at Saudi Arabia. Of course, they're, you know, his good buddies. And that has exacerbated the situation. But what could be done? What has the Biden administration suggested that they might do? And what would you recommend? 
Yeah, one time Biden called Saudi Arabia the pariah state. He was very upset about the murder of Khashoggi and also about the devastation in Yemen, even though it was under his administration with Obama that this started. But he has said he wants to get the U.S. out of this war and we are, as activists, are trying two tracks. One is to pressure the administration to do that by executive order, and the second is to reintroduce the War Powers Act that had passed miraculously both houses of Congress and was vetoed when it got to the president's desk, and this time it won't get vetoed, and that means it will be in law. So those are the two paths that we're doing. In addition, as I mentioned, it's essential to quickly take the Houthis off of that terrorist list so that humanitarian organizations can work there. And the other is pressuring the Saudis to stop the war and to pledge significant money to rebuilding Yemen. And the calculations we have made are that the U.S. should be giving about $1.2 billion for Yemen to begin that rebuilding process. So... We were talking about the filibuster, and it's a fairly straightforward process to call your senator and, and say, or your two senators, and say, uh, end the filibuster, <laughs> please. How do we lobby or make this happen? You, you said, you know, we're progressive activists, and, and you, Medea Benjamin, and Code Pink, and, you know, you're all working toward this. What can people who are listening or watching this program right now do? Well, I mentioned that this had passed both the Senate and the House before, which means that there are Republicans who think this is a horrible war to be in, who are disgusted with the Saudis' behavior. And so this is really doable. They should call their congressperson and say, after five years of participating in the destruction of Yemen, it's time to get out, stop supporting the Saudi-led war, and take the Houthis off of the foreign terrorist list so that humanitarian aid can get to the population under their control. So this is still lobby Congress, essentially. Now, I also seem to recall, Medea, early on in the war that there were reports that the Saudis were using white phosphorus, which is banned in international warfare. It just causes god-awful burns, worse than napalm, I guess. And that they were also using these bombs, these cluster munitions, these bombs that you drop a giant bomb and it's got all these little tiny bomblets in it. And little kids think the bomblets are toys and they pick them up and then blow their hands off. Am I remembering that correctly? And am I also remembering correctly that in both cases those weapons were made here in the United States? And is that still going on, if I'm remembering this right? Well, the cluster bombs were actually manufactured in the U.K., and mm. this was back in 2016, 2017, that there was an outcry against the use of these cluster munitions. I would think that they're probably not being used now, but bombs are being used. Mm. Bombs are just continuing right. to destroy healthcare facilities, water facilities. I mean, part of the reason that there's so much cholera and disease is that the bombing has destroyed the infrastructure in so many parts of the country. Mm. Yeah. So, wow, we've, we've got a big job here to do. I mean, this is a really big project. Go ahead. Yes, but, you know, it's also related to the issue of Iran, and I don't know, do we have time to talk about that? No, no? we've got 10 seconds, I'm sorry. Ah, uh, um, okay. <laughs> yes. But well, you'll we'll have to come back. Re- 
but we'd love to do that. Thanks so much. Okay. Uh, you finish your thought. We need to rewatch. Very quickly. Uh, do we, we need to have a totally different policy towards the Middle East, and let's hope that Biden is up to doing that. Yeah, I'm in. I'm totally with you. Medea Benjamin, one of the great activists in this country, co-founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange. Medea Benjamin. Thanks, Medea. Great talking with you. This you. is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Medea Benjamin's new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. And this is from the introduction. Through the women-led peace organization Code Pink, which I co-founded with Jody Evans after the 9-11 attacks, I have spent much of the last decade standing up against U.S. military intervention in the Middle East and supporting local democracy activists. I traveled many times to the region, listening to human rights activists, marching with them in the streets, dodging tear gas and bullets, and getting beaten up and deported by government thugs. I have seen firsthand the deadly effects of U.S. foreign policies. The 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq destroyed the lives of millions, including many of my dear friends, and unleashed the sectarian hatred that later gave birth to the Islamic State. I recall a conversation with my Iraqi colleague Yanar Mohammed, daughter of a Shiite father and a Sunni mother, and founder of the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq. When I asked her what was the most notable legacy of the U.S. invasion of her country, she gave the chilling response, we... Sunnis and Shia learned to hate each other. In another part of the Middle East, U.S. military support for Israel has wreaked havoc on the lives of Palestinians and aroused the ire of people throughout the region. Continuous U.S. military interventions, drone warfare in Yemen, overthrowing Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, to funneling an endless stream of weapons into the region, have unleashed new levels of violence. But the United States is not the only nation whose massive footprint has been trampling on the lives of people in the Middle East. The other nation is Saudi Arabia, an oppressive monarchy that denies human rights to its own people and exports extremism around the world. It also happens to be the closest U.S. ally in the Arab world. During the 1980s and 1990s, I met intolerant and violent young men in Pakistan and Afghanistan who were trained to hate Westerners in Saudi schools. In 2001, I saw my own nation convulsed by an attack on September 11th that was perpetrated mostly by Saudis. Not hard to connect the dots behind the spread of the Saudi intolerant ideology of Wahhabism, the creation of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and the attacks in New York, Paris, Brussels, and San Bernardino. You can also connect the dots between Saudi Arabia and the failure of some of the historic uprisings associated with the Arab Spring since the Saudi monarchy did not want calls for democracy to threaten its own grip on power. I was in Bahrain after Saudi tanks crushed the inspiring grassroots encampment in Pearl Square, where tens of thousands had gathered day after day to demand democracy. I will never forget the excitement of being in Tahrir Square during the Egyptian Revolution and watching a gasp, uh, gasped as a military coup backed by the Saudis put some 40,000 activists behind bars. In Yemen, the Saudis took a direct military role in that nation's internal conflict with a ruthless bombing campaign. When I travel overseas, people often ask me why Saudi Arabia, a country that is so repressive internally and overseas, is such a close ally to the United States. Iranian friends want to know why the U.S. government is so outspoken about human rights violations in Iran, but silent about the worst abuses in the Saudi kingdom. 
Yemenis ask why my government supplies weapons to the very nation, Saudi Arabia, that bombed their schools and hospitals. Saudi women ask why the United States, which professes great democratic values, props up a regime that treats women as second-class citizens. The easy answer is oil, weapon sales, and other business interests. Oil has formed the basis for U.S.-Saudi ties. The kingdom has become the largest purchaser of American weapons in the world, and hundreds of billions of Saudi petrodollars help shore up the U.S. economy. But there's another reason, perhaps more critical than any of the others. The American people have not demanded an end to this dysfunctional, toxic relationship. Why? In part, because the American people know so little about it. Even American parts of a peace movement know virtually nothing about the kingdom. The Saudi press is muzzled, foreign journalists are strictly monitored, and only tourists visiting for religious purposes are allowed into the country. Add to that a Saudi lobby that lines the pockets of U.S. think tanks, such as the Middle East Institute, Ivy League universities such as Harvard and Yale, and influential institutions from the Clinton Foundation to the Carter Center. This checkbook diplomacy helps put a happy face on the abusive monarchy and silences its critics. We have a lot to uncover. This book is meant to be a primer, giving readers a basic understanding of how the kingdom holds on to power internally and tries to influence the outside world. It looks at the founding of the Saudi state, the treatment of dissidents, religious minorities, women and migrant workers, the spread of Wahhabism, the kingdom's relationship with the West and its role in the region, and what the future might hold. As we delve into the inner workings of this dystopian regime, don't mistake criticism of Saudi Arabia for Islamophobia. This book is not a critique of Islam, but a critique of three intertwining factors that have shaped the Saudi nation. The extremist interpretation of Sunni Islam, known as Wahhabism, the appropriation of the Saudi state by one family, and Western support for this dynasty. Criticizing Saudi Arabia should not be equated with support for Saudi's nemesis, Iran. The Iranian government is guilty of some of the same abuses as the Saudis. Kingdom of the Unjust. David in South Pasadena, California. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I love your show, and I tend to agree with you 99.5% of the time. But I'm, <laughs> I'm confused. I want to challenge you or ask you to explain more why you're so dismissive of the idea of the primary from the left with these senators, Manchin and Cinema, and others who really might be called Dinos, Democrats in name only. Because I think that's at least as likely to to work as appealing to the better angels of their nature. And it certainly seems to work well for the the Trumpists. Just the threat of a right-wing primary challenge often, you know, modifies the behavior of Republicans. So could you Mm -hmm. explain more about why you just see that as not, you know, a viable strategy here? Sure. Yeah, well, two steps. First of all, the reason why a primary threat works for, for Republicans is because well over half of the Republican electorate, I I would say probably 70 or 80 percent of the Republican electorate, if you look at popularity polls and what percentage of Republicans, people who voted Republican in the last election still support Donald Trump, it's a really high percentage. So on the Republican Mm -hmm. side, there is a really large base that can turn out on a primary and kick somebody out of office. In the House, it's a whole lot easier. In the Senate, it's a little harder. But in both cases, you know, you get people running scared. And I think that may have something to do with why Rob Portman has said he's not going to run for re-election in Ohio, you know, in two mm. years. With regard to the Democratic side, we don't have a large and strong progressive base 
that is anything close to 50% of all the Democrats. The congressional progressives are roughly 50%, but it's still less than 50%. There's only about 100 members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. There's 200 and what, 18, 19, 20, no, 224, I think, uh, Democratic senators or members, members of the House. So the threat of a primary is not taken all that seriously by these so-called moderate Democrats like Manchin and Cinema. number one, for that reason. And then number two, both of them have been reelected. And once a senator has been reelected, it's almost impossible to extract them. You know, we've been seeing this for years and years on the Democratic side with, for example, Dianne Feinstein. And third, they've got enormous financial resources. I mean, they both now have tens of millions of dollars in their war chests for elections, which includes primaries. So they can use the power of incumbency. So I, I'm not saying that I'm opposed to trying to primary either one of them. I would much rather see a good progressive senator from West Virginia and a good progressive senator from Arizona. And I think a good progressive senator from either state over time would have, you know, a better chance of getting reelected and, and would be a good thing for the states and for the for the country. I just in this particular case with these particular people around this particular issue, like I said earlier, I don't think the filibuster is a big enough issue. It's so policy. It's so in the weeds. I don't think it's a big enough issue that it mobilizes, you know, more than five or 10 percent of the base. So, right, so you add all those things together. You don't run on the procedural. I mean, and that's a very good case. Right. But you don't run on the procedural issue. You run on the, the failed Votes, you know, the fact that the things that people want, like single yeah. payer health care, et cetera, are not getting passed because these people are supporting, you know, processes that prevent it from right. getting but passed. Then they, but then they'll just run an ad saying, oh, no, I supported that climate bill. We just couldn't get 60 votes. See, that's a, that was my point earlier. They've been hiding behind the filibuster, all these people, for years and years and years. But those are my thoughts, David. I may be wrong, but that, that's what I think. On the Science Revolution, Dr. Justin A. Frank is here on the psychology of mob mentality and violence. What propels a mob? Dr. Sam Metz, a member of Mad as Hell Doctors, drops by on the need for federal legislation to allow individual states to create true statewide universal health care plans, especially single-payer plans. Plus, in geeky science, I've discovered how 11 minutes can save the quality of your life. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, wow, what an amazing day, huh? Connie in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Connie, what's up? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to see Mansion and Cinema. I called their numbers, and I think everybody should be calling them because they have Democratic constituents that they're not caring about. They're just catering to the Republicans, and they're going to hold back things that we can get done and that's for Democrats. Then we're going yep. to be looked at as doing nothing again. I so agree, Connie. And the telephone number of the switchboard at the Capitol, and you can then ask for Senator Manchin, and you can ask for Senator Cinema, you can ask for your two senators, you can ask for your member of the House of Representatives. The telephone number is 202-224-3121, and that gets you the Capitol switchboard, and they will connect you to any office you want. Write it down on your refrigerator, right, <laughs> with a felt marker, or put it on a piece of paper and stick it up with a magnet. 202-224-3121. 
2021 is the telephone number. Connie, you are so right. Thank you. Jeff in Kenosha County, Wisconsin. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. I'd like to kind of talk about a, a worst-case scenario. With this stuff going down, and it seems to be rooted more deeply than we thought with this insurrection and coup, I've heard for years people talking about, the same people talking about, it's time for civil war, it's time for civil war. This has been campfire talk for years. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering what our nuclear allies, what our European allies who've had their countries destroyed by fascism and Nazism. I wonder what they're thinking now, and I wonder what they would do if our country was taken over. I know you've mentioned before that there is kind of a fascist rebirth in Europe, and I wonder if mm-hmm. I wonder what they would do. And I'm kind of wondering, too, if uh, the people who are talking this stuff, I wonder if they realize that if they did succeed in this, that Europe probably would not react favorably to it. And they might help restore order in this country, or in a worst case, you know, they don't want to go through this again. I was just wondering, I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, no, they don't. And France has a a real problem with Marine Le Pen and her movement. Germany, they've got their right-wing movement that is on the edge of neo-Nazism. You've got other right-wing movements, a big one in Sweden, for example, that's just explicitly Nazi. And in my opinion, a lot of this is being fed, particularly on social media, particularly on Facebook, by bots and trolls who are not even in these countries. They are based in other countries that do not have democratic forms of government and that are resisting democracy impulses in their countries and fighting them and imprisoning people who are campaigning for democracy like Saudi Arabia has done, like is happening in Russia right now as we speak, like it's happening in Belarus. You know, they're stoking this stuff because now you've got Joe Biden saying to Russia, you need to treat people well. And they're like, ha, screw you. We're going to put Navalny and and et cetera in jail. You're absolutely right, Jeff. This is a worldwide problem and it's going to bite us badly. Jeff, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.